Please do take a seat. I'll let you deal with this. I'm known as Mr. Destroy It Yourself, Mr. DIY in our church, so I don't touch anything technical. Um, and I'm a bit worried about the cat who keeps walking, the cathedral cat, uh, because uh, as I'm standing here, it may well be that you find the cat more interesting. <laughs> walking up and down. Something's happened to his tail. He's had an accident. It was born that way, right? Is that right? Okay. Oh, well, I'm learning things every day, so it's good to be with you. I wonder if you'll turn with me in the Bibles, please, to page 859, if you've got a green-spotted Bible, or um, page 1035, if you've got a yellow-spotted Bible. It's the greater-spotted Bible or the lesser-spotted, but I feel as I'm... There's a, there ought to be some sort of... Thank you very much for this. Is it got gin in it as well? No, I don't. <laughs> I am an Anglican. Uh, Luke chapter 3, and we're looking together at those verses which George read to us. Well done, George. I think we ought to give George a round of applause. Aren't you glad? Now, this is the reason why people don't volunteer for the Bible reading rota. They think they're going to do a, they're going to get lumbered with the difficult names that they have to pronounce. But George, well done. Thank you very much indeed. As we have the Bible before us, let's turn to the God of the Bible and let's ask for his help, shall we, as we look together at his word. Let's pray. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you are a God who speaks to us, that we're not left in the dark, but you have indeed spoken to us through your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that you give us a written word inspired by your spirit, which is an accurate testimony to your son, the living word. And we pray that this written word would come alive to us now and that we would understand it and we would see its significance for our lives today. So would your Holy Spirit be our teacher and would your greater glory be our supreme concern through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You may well have heard of um, a medical missionary called Dr. Albert Schweitzer. He was also a, a well-known theologian, but he began his life's work at the age of 30. He'd made up his mind that he needed to train, first of all, began, before he began his life's work. So he wasn't content to just become one doctor. He became three. So he studied law and became a doctor of law. Then he um, studied medicine and became a doctor of medicine. And then, not content with that, he decided he would study theology and became a doctor of theology. Um, and so after all those studies, he thought he was perhaps prepared for whatever his life work was going to be. But he wasn't quite sure what that, what that was. And then someone gave him a magazine, and in that magazine was an article about the French Congo in Africa, or French Congo as it was then. He read it, and that night in his diary he wrote these words, My search for my life's work is over. And at the age of 30 he went to a little town in French, what was then French Congo in Africa, and there with his own hands he built, and making the bricks himself, a small medical mission hospital, and he worked there for 50 years. 
At the age of 30, he began his life's work. And in our passage this morning, Luke tells us in chapter 3, verse 23, if you looked at verse 23 with me, that this is the beginning of Jesus' life work, except unlike Dr. Albert Schweitzer, who gave 50 years to his work, Jesus will give just three. But those three years will be just what is needed in order to save the world. A life's work compacted into three years. And Luke tells us this is the beginning. In fact, in the original, that word ministry in verse 23 isn't there. It simply reads, when he began. So this is it. Everything up until this point, which Luke has been at pains to describe, and in some of it in great detail in the first two chapters, has been a prelude, has been a leading up to this point. The birth, the background, the tantalizing glimpses of Jesus' childhood, it's all been leading up to this moment when Jesus can go public and his life's work can begin. But before it, do, before it does, I'm just about to break, do you see, I'm just about to break the lectern, living, living up to my prophecy. <laughs> I, I, will, I will try and not touch this lectern. It's dropped already. <laughs> can, I, can I grab that lectern over there? Sorry. I'll probably break that one as well. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. I keep working my way through all your lecterns, you won't invite me back again. <laughs> Before Jesus begins his life's work, there's one thing that he must do first. Chapter 3 has begun, as uh, Kenneth told us at the start of the service this morning, chapter 3 has begun with a whole lot of excitement, uh, excitement that's rippled through the country as more and more people have begun to take trips out into the desert, which seems a strange thing to happen. Something is happening out in the desert. They're going to hear a strange preacher who lives out there. He's, he's, he looks odd. And he wears funny clothes. His diet is even more extraordinary. He just sort of scrapes food from the rocks. And this man, John, is actually John's, uh, Jesus' cousin. And Luke has already introduced us to him in chapter 1. He, too, had an extraordinary birth like Jesus. John has now grown up, he's out in the wilderness, in the desert, and he's calling people back to God, telling them that God is coming, his kingdom is coming, and that they better get ready for him, and they better clean up their lives, turn away from their lives, the life, the direction in which the life was going away from God, turn back to God, come and be plunged, he says, in the River Jordan, which was a mucky, messy, horrible river. And show that you're serious about washing your life clean with God. And before Jesus begins his life's work, he decides he's got to go down and be baptized. So he trudges 50 miles southeast, right the way down, down and down and down. The River Jordan is way below the sea level to the lowest, dirtiest spot in that river, River Jordan. And that's our first point this morning. If you've got uh, the outline, you'll see Jesus' baptism. I'm a bear of little brain. It's all very simple this morning, nothing difficult. Jesus' baptism. Notice, first of all, the setting. Verse 21. Now, when all the people were being baptized, that was when Jesus decided to be baptized. 
John the Baptist is not exactly making it easy for the, the people. He's out in the desert for a start, so it's not easy to get to him. And when they do get to him, John's not exactly sort of welcoming, is he? Have a look back at chapter 3 and verse 7. Look at what he says to them as they come into the desert to hear what John has to say. You brood of vipers. Now, I'm too polite. As an Englishman, I would never dream of coming to Malaysia and saying, beginning my sermon by saying, you brood of vipers. But that's how John began his sermon. You know, it's not exactly how to win friends and influence people, is it? He's warning them, though, against going through a religious ceremony of baptism, being plunged under the water and then coming out of the waters and walking off as though actually didn't, didn't matter how you live after that. And John is saying, no, if you're serious about coming back to God, then actually coming back to God means turning away from the life that you were living before. So get serious about repentance. And serious about baptism. If you want verse 3, chapter 3, the forgiveness of sins, you need to be serious about this. And it was as people were coming and being baptized for that forgiveness of sins that Jesus joined the queue. Do you say, well, hang on a moment. I thought you Christians believed that Jesus was the most perfect man on earth. That there's never been a man like him. That he was always good, that he was perfect. And yes, you're absolutely right. That is what we believe. The Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way, as we are, but he never disobeyed God. Never once. He always loved God. With all his heart, with all his mind, with all his strength. That was Jesus. So you say, why is it that Jesus, before he starts his life's work, goes out into, into the desert and stands in that queue of people to be baptized. The people who are admitting that they need forgiveness of sins when you're saying that Jesus never, never committed a sin. And the answer is he stood in that queue because as he stood there, he was identifying himself with you and with me and with all the sinners there in that line. People have messed up in life. People who've gone their own way. People who've said to God, no, actually, I'll rule my own life, thanks very much. Jesus is willing to stand and identify himself in a line of sinners. Now, years ago, I remember reading a book called Black, Like, like Me. It was written by a white American who decided that he'd try and understand what it was like to be a black African-American in the Deep South. So he had his skin dyed black. He shaved his body, and he went out into the same towns and villages that he'd visited before as a tra traveling salesman. And nothing could have prepared him for the prejudice and the hatred which he faced. He was treated like dirt by the very people who previously had opened their homes to him when he was a white man. You see, he was identifying himself with the black African-Americans, before he'd felt sympathy, before he'd felt maybe outrage, before he'd been appalled, but now he knew, in a way that he hadn't known before, what it was like to stand in their shoes and to be rejected and to be hated himself. 
And as Jesus joined the crowd by the, the side of the Jordan River, getting, waiting to be baptized by John, he was saying, in effect, treat me like a sinner. Number me with the transgressors. Put me in that water. Joe, you know, is the first step that Jesus takes to identify himself with you and me. Ultimately, the end of his life's work, his, life work will cul- his life's work will culminate in the giving of his very life in identification with us, becoming sin for us. Not just standing with us, but suffering for us and taking it from us. Now, friends, I wonder if you can see that queue of sinners in your mind's eye standing at the side of the River Jordan. And I wonder if you can say this morning with real honesty, that is me. I should be in that queue. You know, I pushed God out of my life. I've walked away from him time and time again. I lived in this world as though I was God in his world. That's me. He was a great crowd of sinners like us, and Jesus came and stood with them, and in so doing, identified himself with you, with your sins, with your problem, and with mine too. Do you know that tells us something, doesn't it? Already, if you've not known much about Jesus, that tells us something about the sort of man he is. He's come not for people who've got their lives all sorted. He's come for those who are willing to say to God, I am a sinner. I'm a rebel. And I need you. Those are the people that Jesus comes and stands shoulder to shoulder with. So Jesus came and he was baptized. And notice secondly, the prayer, verse 21. When Jesus also had been baptized and was praying. Now, Luke doesn't tell us why he was praying or what he was praying. But it seems clear, I think, that he was praying about the task that lay before him, his life's work. It's difficult for us to think what it must have been like for Jesus growing up. Don't you think? I think we tend to sort of go one way or the other on this. You know, we either think he was a bit like sort of junior Superman you know, having to rein in his powers, you know, having to pretend to all the other kids in his class that he really was a wimp. You know, he couldn't ever catch a ball or throw it. He couldn't ever strike a, you know, a, hit a run. Actually, he could do it all amazingly, you know, but having to pretend that he was no good at anything. Uh, a bit like, did you ever see the, um, was it the New Adventures of Superman? Did you ever watch that? The, the, did you get that over here? American series where you're seeing, you're seeing Superman growing up and he's having to, you know, live this double life of really actually hiding all his powers, pretending he's a normal, normal human being when actually he's this amazing guy. I think we can be like that with Jesus. You know, mate, was that how it was? He was hiding everything. Or I think we can go to the other extreme where we say, well, you know, he, he's not aware that he's God at all. And then he wakes up at the age 30 and thinks, ah, I'm God. I'm the son of God. <laughs> you know, that sounds a bit odd as well, doesn't it? Actually, of course, Jesus is both God and man. He was completely human, utterly human. There's never been a man who's been more human than Jesus. And yet, Luke tells us in these first few chapters that as Jesus grows physically, so he grows in a sense of being in favor with God and grows in wisdom and stature. He knew at the temple at age 12 that he was doing his dad's work not being the apprentice to his you know, adopted father, Joseph, doing carpentry, but, be, but doing the mission of God, his heavenly father. At 12, he knew that. 
And yet Luke has told us how he's been growing up and becoming more and more wise as he's grown. And I guess he was praying about the task, therefore, that was ahead of him, the mission that God was calling him to, the work that he was about to begin. But as he stood in that line, don't you think also he must have been praying for the sinners with whom he was identifying? He'd come for them. And in that case, he was praying for you. And he was praying for me also. Notice thirdly the seal or the anointing. The end of verse 21, we're told, The heavens were opened, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove. 600 years, we had it earlier on in our Old Testament reading. 600 years before, the prophet Isaiah had cried out to God, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And on this day, as Jesus is baptized, plunged into the waters of the River Jordan, it happens, it comes true. The heaven is open. And God, in the person of his Holy Spirit, descends on Jesus, anointing him and empowering him for his life's work, the work that he's about to do. So just look down, if you've got the Bible there, at chapter 4, verse 1. Move on to chapter 4, verse 1. And you'll see, chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. It's by the power of the Spirit that Jesus goes into the wilderness and now faces a great test, a test of 40 days. It's the Holy Spirit who leads him there. Or look down or across the page at chapter 4 and verse 14. It's in the power of the Spirit that Jesus returns to Galilee and starts to teach in the synagogues. And you notice in verse 18, as Jesus preaches his sermon in the synagogue in Nazareth, the text that's read is from the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus at his baptism, and it's as though God is is setting his seal upon him and saying, you're mine, you're my son, you're my servant. You're the one that the Old Testament prophet Isaiah looked forward to and longed for. And that's confirmed, fourthly, by the voice. Look at, back, look at verse 22 of chapter 3. A voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus had known it in the temple, hadn't he? Even at the age of 12, he'd known that he was God's Son. But now God confirms it in a way that is absolutely clear by the giving of his Spirit And by declaring in words from heaven, heaven is opened. And Jesus is declared, proclaimed by the Father to be his Son and anointed or sealed by the Spirit. The whole of God, the Trinity, Father and Spirit, join with the Son in acknowledging who this man really is. And that's important because it won't be long, will it, before Jesus will hear another voice in the desert... Alone and hungry, he will hear the devil's voice saying, If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Use your powers to satisfy yourself. Jesus isn't that sort of king. He's not that sort of son. He's a son who comes and identifies with sinners, who stands in a line of people that he is going to serve. No wonder the Father says with the Spirit, You are my beloved Son, and I'm delighted with you. You ever taken pride in your, in your children? 
Now, we're not supposed to do that, are we? Pride is a terrible thing. But in the right sense, you've seen your kids do the right thing without you prompting them. (laughs) They've done it. They've chosen it. And you think, brilliant, brilliant. Take that, that feeling and multiply it by a million times as Jesus looks on his son and says, I am thrilled with you. The delight of the Father in the Son. You say, well, that's very interesting. But so what? Well, very simply this. Jesus is the Son of God. He's approved by God. Father and Spirit. And as God's Son, what is his very first act? It's to identify with mucked up people like you and me. It's not to be away from us. It's not to judge us. It's not to condemn us. It's not to speak over us. It's to come and stand with us. Do you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus as he stands in the line of sinners. This God wants you to know him. He wants to know you. And he's come at great expense to free you from your sins. And I don't know about you, but if God is truly like that, that's a God I want to know. That's a God I want to love. Well, now, verse 23, Jesus begins. Jesus begins, except Luke doesn't actually show us any of the action yet. He says it begins, and then he he gives us Jesus' family tree. Now, you might think that's a strange thing to do. Why would Luke put Jesus' family tree here? Why didn't he give Jesus' family tree when he told us about Jesus' birth. Surely that would have been the sensible thing to do. That's what Matthew does. We'll see at the end, I think, why Luke puts Jesus' family tree here. But those who've studied Matthew's family tree and those who've studied Luke's family tree have noticed there's a problem. There are big differences between the two. The first difference is that they're given in the opposite order. So Matthew starts way back in the past and works down until he gets to Joseph and then Jesus. Luke's is the other way around. He starts with Jesus and then Joseph and he works back. And that's not a problem, it's just different. If you compare both family trees from Abraham down to King David, they are identical. Exactly the same people are mentioned. But between David and Joseph the father of Jesus, they are completely different. And people say, well, there we are. The Bible's full of contradictions. You can't trust it. Well, before you dismiss the Bible as full of contradictions, let me say that there are a number of explanations, possible explanations. I won't bore you with all of them, but let me give you the one I think that's the most likely. And it's this, that Matthew and Luke are doing two different things. Matthew is tracing, I think, the ancestor of Jesus from Abraham all the way down to Joseph, and he's showing that Jesus is the legal son of Joseph. And because he's the legal son of Joseph, legally he has a right to the throne. He's the son of of David the king. You see? Luke, on the other hand, isn't giving us Joseph's family tree, but Mary's. And he's showing us that biologically... Jesus is the son of Mary, and biologically, because Mary can trace all her family back to King David, biologically, 
Jesus has a claim to the throne, to David's throne. So Luke says in verse 23, speaking of Jesus, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. In other words, he's saying Jesus wasn't really Joseph's, Joseph, sorry, he's saying, let me start again. In other words, he's saying Joseph wasn't really Jesus's biological father. Now, if he's just told us that, what would be the point then of giving us Joseph's family tree? You see, there would be no point, would there? Because he's just said, actually, Jesus wasn't the son of Joseph. So instead, having dismissed Joseph as being the biological father, his point is now that Jesus' real biological line has come from Mary. And so Healy, in verse 23, is Mary's father and not Joseph's. That would make sense because Luke traces the men in his line whereas Matthew gives us men and women. But Luke starts with the first man on Mary's side, which is Mary's father, Healy, her father. Does that make sense? You follow that? Yeah, yeah? Not, you look a bit confused. So what, what Luke is doing is he's giving us not the line of Joseph, but he's giving us the line of Mary. And because Luke is interested in men in his line anyway, he skips Mary and goes to Mary's father, the grandfather. Do you see? And then follows traces Mary's line all the way back to David. So he gives us a different line. And the point of this is seen in the fact that Matthew is tracing Joseph's family tree and giving us Jesus as the legal descendant of the king, King David. Luke is interested in showing us Mary's family tree and showing us that Jesus is the biological descendant of David the king. Legally, biologically, Jesus has a double claim on the throne of David. He is descended from David. I don't know whether you ever thought of digging up your family tree. Has anybody done that? Anybody been brave enough to start looking? No? It's a popular thing in the UK. We've got a huge churchyard in our, uh, attached to our church. And it dates way back. Well, our, the, church is, um, the church was founded in 1220. So we go right back to that. And there was a building on our site way back. Well, it's recorded in the Doomsday Book, which is 1000 and whatever it was, the Doomsday Book. So there's been a church on our site for a thousand years. So we've been burying a lot of people. You know, you can bury a lot of people in a thousand years, can't you? So you can imagine, we get inquiries all the time. Do you, can, we face our, can we trace our family tree with, in your churchyard, please? Our poor church administrator. She's become an expert on family trees. One family decided to trace their, fa- their do their family tree, and everything was fine until they discovered that great Bill, great Uncle Bill, had committed an armed robbery in the United States and was actually electrocuted on the electric chair. Well, they were horrified. So to avoid embarrassment, they told the historian who was, you know, beautifully drawing it all up on parchment, um, word it in such a way as nobody will know. So this was the wording. Uncle Bill was in a successful business in America. He stayed there before moving on to a prominent government institution. It was there that he spent many years before he was finally given a chair. (laughs) He occupied the seat for a short time, becoming very attached to it, 
before dying at the age of 65, his death came as quite a shock. <laughs> well, you never know, do you, what you might dig up in a family tree. But look at Jesus' family tree. We're not, don't worry, we're not going to spend all our time going through every name. We'll be here forever. But look, there's Zerubbabel and Shealtiel in verse 27. They were the guys who rebuilt the temple after the exile. They led the people after they came out of the exile and came back into the land. There's David, verse 31, the great king. There's David's great-grandfather, Boaz, verse 32, who married Ruth, the Gentile, the Moabites. And you go back and back and back. You get to Jacob in verse 34, and Isaac, and Abraham. And you remember God was the God who identified himself with them. This is a God who identifies, you see. See Jesus identifying with sinners. God identified himself, didn't he? with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, I am the God. Who am I? I'm going to pin myself to these guys. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he gave them tremendous promises. He said that through you and your family, I'm going to save the world. Now, when you get to Abraham, Matthew in his family tree stops. That's as far back as he goes, because Matthew presents Jesus as king of the Jews. But Luke keeps going. Back and back to Noah, verse 36, who built that ark. Remember that God told him he had to build when he was going to wash the whole world clean. Back to Methuselah, verse 37. Methuselah, whose name meant when he dies, it will happen. And he died in the year of the flood. And that's why Methuselah was the oldest man. Because God longs and he waits and he's patient and he longs that all would turn back. And he gives the maximum amount of time for people to turn back to him. But then in the end, judgment fell. Back we still go further to to Enoch, who walked with God. And one day, don't you love it? One day he went for a walk and he never came home. Because he went home to be with God. Enoch walked with God and then was no more, we're told. That doesn't mean to say doesn't mean to say he was snuffed out. It meant to be that he he got you know one day God said, "Well, you're a bit tired. Why didn't you come? Why didn't instead of going home to your home, why did you go come home with me?" And back and back we go until verse thirty-eight. We get to Adam and, and look at how Adam is described: the son of God. You know, we don't come from apes. We don't come from some primeval slime. We're not here by accident. We come from God. It was God who made Adam in his own image, the son of God. And that's the reason why Luke puts the family tree here. Right after we've heard heaven declare, the voice of heaven, God himself saying to Jesus, you are my son, the family tree of Jesus says, Jesus is God's son. God the Father says, you're my beloved son. That's the the vertical line. Jesus has come from God. He's his son. But you you trace Jesus' ancestry on the horizontal line, the human line, and you find he's in the line of Adam, the human son of God too. So at every level, Luke is shouting to us loud and clear, Jesus is the son of God. What does that mean for us as we close? Three things. It means he has a right to rule. If he's from God, and humanly, legally and biologically, he's the heir to King David's throne, then he's a ruler. 
And what's more, he is the king. God has said to David, I'm going to establish your, your throne. And there will always be one who will sit on your throne. One who will sit on your throne forever. And not just over Israel, but over the world. And Luke is showing us, this is the king. The voice from heaven says, you are my son. Words taken from Psalm 2, the coronation psalm, where God sets his king on his holy hill, and the nations try and overthrow him, and God laughs at their poor attempts. Because God says, he's my son, he's my king, and what's more, he will rule over the nations. Now, Jesus is this king, and what's more, he's not some cruel tyrant who's out for himself. He'll take and take and take, and that's all the kings of Israel did. You know, Moses warned them. If they appoint a king, that's what's going to happen. He'll just take and take and take from you, and they did. Jesus is not that sort of king. Jesus is the sort of king who stands at the River Jordan, identifying with the lowest of the low. That's the sort of king he is, come to serve. Have you surrendered to the king? It means he has a right to rule. Secondly, it means he's one of us. He's one of us. If Jesus can trace his family tree right back to Adam, it means that he's not only the king over Israel, but he's the king for all Adam's descendants. If it were possible to draw up a big family tree with all those who've ever lived in this world, you would be in it right at the bottom somewhere, and Jesus would be in that tree too. He's one of us, and he's come for us. And standing in line by the river, he shows it. And thirdly, it means that there's hope. It means that there's hope. See, Jesus' family tree reminds us of what all of us as human beings are meant to be. Who is Jesus? Verse 38, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now that's what you're meant to be. That's what we're meant to be. That's what you were made to be. Do you remember that great picture in Genesis chapter 3? When God has made Adam and he's put him in that beautiful garden, paradise, and we're told that God comes and walks with Adam in the cool of the day. Do you know there's nothing, there's nothing wrong between them? Nothing between them. Everything's perfect. There's intimacy between God and between Adam. That's how it was meant to be as children of God. And we've messed it up. And now none of us is what we're meant to be, what we should be. But you look at Jesus, and he is what we're meant to be. And he came to restore you, and he came to restore me to that place as sons and daughters of the living God. And in Jesus, therefore, he provides the way to make it possible for us to be restored to the place where we should be, the place where we'll never be, unless God comes and lifts us up. So here is Jesus at the age of 30, and it's all beginning. And Luke wants us to be absolutely clear, this is the Son of God. You can't avoid him. He is going to rule. He will have a kingdom. And one day every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess him as king. So you and I might as well do that now. I want to encourage you to do that now. If you haven't ever turned to Jesus as king and asked him to rule over your life, Please do so. Please do so. He's not some cruel tyrant. He's the one who comes and stands alongside sinners in order to save them. And friends, if you have done that, 
If you're seeking day by day to live with Jesus as your king, be encouraged this morning that you've done exactly the right thing. Find yourself in line with the Holy Spirit of God who seals Jesus and anoints him and with the Father himself who declares his son to be our king and the one in whom he delights. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your son is the one that you've sent into the world to save us. Thank you that he is the son of God. Humanly, he's descended from Adam, the son of God. Divinely, he comes from heaven. He's, he is from you. And thank you this morning that we can bow before him and we can acknowledge him to be the one who is the master, the one who is the Lord, the one who calls the shots over our lives. Help us to do that. And we praise you that he's the sort of king who doesn't come to serve himself, but he'll stand in the line of sinners and identify himself with us so that he might save us. Help us, we pray, to humble ourselves, to acknowledge him as king, and to know his good and right rule over our lives, that we might find what it is to be children of the living God, sons and daughters of Adam, sons and daughters of the living God. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.